the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good afternoon to you and welcome. It is a Friday afternoon and great to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline for this October the 6th. If you say, gee, the broadcast sounds a little bit different today and noise in the background. Well, that's because we are broadcasting live today from Hillside Church in San Jose. Many of you, of course, followers of the broadcast ministry of Dr. Keith Crosby right here on KFAX. Well, we're down here for a very special day. We've got some very special guests that we're going to be meeting throughout the broadcast today. But I first uh, and foremost want to say welcome to all of our folks here in our live studio audience. And, of course, we welcome folks listening to KFAX throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. You have no plans for this Friday night, so come on down and join us for a very special treat. We've got a full house here at Hillside Church that's located at 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose. And uh, we are here for a very special occasion and to meet some very special people. Of course, Pastor Keith Crosby, many of you know here on KFAX, but you're going to meet some really special folks coming up in just a moment. But I want to invite you, if you're in the greater San Jose area, don't have any plans for this Friday evening, want to hear an encouraging story and enjoy some great fellowship at Hillside Church. Again, that's located at 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose. And we're going to be here live right up until 7 o'clock tonight or when they kick us out, whichever comes first. So we invite you to come on down and join us. Today, as I mentioned, a very special day, a very special broadcast. We are here for the official book release and book signing of a new book and we're going to talk about it today. But I want to start with a couple of thoughts. You know, as we look at the broader perspective of salvation, believers, of course, understand that salvation by grace comes through faith, and it's at the heart of the Christian faith. Those who know Christ have experienced in grace unto salvation. But his grace isn't singularly given to us for salvation. His grace is also there for us for everyday living. How do we live by grace? It's a journey, to be sure, a journey taken step by step. And today, we'll discover the keys to walking with grace, which coincidentally is also the title of a brand new book by a very special guest. The book, again, called Walking with Grace, Embracing God's Goodness in Trauma. Let's please welcome, if you would, microphone side, Grace Utono. Thank you, Craig. It's, it's such an honor to be here today um, with you. Um, my husband and I are such fans of your show. Um, we love the truth that you bring to the Bay Area um, night after night, and we just think it's so incredible that you have been doing that for decades. 
Um, so that's a polite way of saying old guy. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll take the compliment, Grace. <laughs> that is something that is needed everywhere, but I think particularly in Northern California, I think um, the community needs it, and God is using you in a very special way, um, and it's just an honor to be on the show tonight. Well, and it's our privilege. Most importantly, to share some of your story and your journey, and it has been a phenomenal journey. And certainly, folks that are a part of the community of believers here um, at Hillside know what your journey has been, what your dad has been through, what you've been through, your mom, your husband as well. And we're going to ask you to kind of unpack many of those details for us over the course of the next couple of hours. But kind of take us back, if you would, and I, I want to go way back. Um, we're going to get to know you as a writer today, but I understand that uh, writing was one of your passions early, early on, but even earlier than that, going back to the age of what, about six years old, uh, you discovered the violin. Some of the folks in the audience might know it better as the fiddle, but it really is the violin. And I want to kind of have you share with us a bit about how you first discovered this instrument, how music came into your life. Well, um... Side note to the people who are grimacing and going, fiddle is not the same as violin. Um, <laughs> I compare violin to ballet and fiddle to, like, hip-hop. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, no, they're not the same. It looks like the same instrument, and you play in them totally differently. So, you know, I've been asked to play fiddle at different weddings and stuff, and um, people totally could tell I was faking it. So... <laughs> Anyway, um, but yes, I did start violin lessons when I was probably six and a half, and I think the teacher quickly encouraged my parents to give me private lessons, um, and my dad was a seminary student, so um, I'm not exactly sure how those lessons came about, but they did, um, and I quickly um, progressed through teachers um we um my parents during that time um finished cemetery and we moved to wisconsin um i was blessed um between middle school and high school to study at the music institute of chicago um and lawrence university um, in appleton wisconsin um and when it was time to graduate um I wanted to go to a conservatory, and I had spent my whole life um, preparing for that. I had been practicing like four hours a day since I was 12, you know, going to summer programs that lasted seven weeks during the summer, um, and I had set my sights on the school named Eastman, and, you know, there's three top-ish schools in the country, Juilliard, Curtis, and Eastman, um, and I wanted to go to Eastman. So I threw all my effort into that, and, you know, God helped me get accepted. I got accepted into the studio I wanted. Um, but when I got there and I got what I wanted, I realized that it was re a really ungodly place, that it was encouraging me to invest in myself and to um, put God second um, when you're practicing 10 or 12 hours a day, you don't have time for church. You don't have time to serve. You don't have time to fellowship with other people. 
And I realized that that's not the life that God was calling me to um, as a young woman. And so that was, um, around that time was when I ended up withdrawing, which I still say is one of the most difficult things I have ever done in my life. Um, And transferring to a school in Riverside, California called California Baptist University. But clearly that was a passion of yours from the sense that the depth of your relationship with Christ and wanting to make sure that in all things you honored him. And I would imagine you recognized then early on that this gift of music, this talent that you had, was not something that just showed up. I mean, many of us have met your dad. I don't think there's a musical bone in his body per se. (laughs) But clearly this was a gift from God, and you wanted to honor God with I did, um, but I think what I learned was that as a young person, um, environment has a lot to do with how you treat your gifts, with how you see yourself, with how you see those around you, and while music is a beautiful gift, and I believe everyone should exercise their gifts as much as they possibly can, as an 18-year-old, was an environment that literally told students, like I literally hold, heard multiple professors telling students, music is your God. Um, I, you know, <coughs> heard professors telling their students not to get married, that it would ruin, ruin their careers. Um, you know, and stuff like that. Is Is that the place for an 18-year-old who's still figuring out their life and, you know, where they stand on their faith. And and I'm not even saying that, you know, all 18-year-olds need to withdraw. I'm just saying that for where I was in my faith at that time, I think that was not where God wanted me. Was it important for you, Grace, to also, in a sense, stand up for your faith, to make a statement, so to speak, in that music was not your God, but it was a gift from your God to be used for his glory? Yes, I think so. And I think that's why transferring to a Christian college, um, you know, I transferred, I went to their music department and said, hey, I still have to pay for college, you know? Um, And I'm coming from this really great school, so is there any chance you can help me pay for college? Um, And they were very kind and said yes. So I... You know, after I left, I still played violin every day. Um, I, you know, got my um, independent worker worker profile going, and I taught lessons on the weekends. I played weddings. I played special events. I played um, shows. So the thing is, I, I left the prestige, so to speak, but really... Um, I was actually playing just as much or more than I had been in New York. It was just I was choosing the things I played and how or where or when, and I was choosing to play at church or choosing to encourage people. So I'm curious, from from the age of a little girl, when you first picked up not the fiddle but the violin, we've learned on that one, <laughs> and looking forward, what was the ultimate goal here? What was the desire of your heart in terms of where you saw yourself 
not only relationally in honoring God with this gift, but long-term professionally in terms of using this gift for his glory. What, what was the ultimate goal? Was it to be Carnegie Hall? Was it to perform at large church uh, presentations, to be a solo artist? What, what was in your heartbeat? Well, I think, I think when I was you know, doing violin competitively as a teenager and early college student, your goal is either to prove to everyone that you were a prodigy or to prove that you worked so hard that then all the prodigies and you know can still do whatever you want and be a concert artist. So and that's a very self-centered way to look at things and it leaves you very unhappy because there will always be someone better than yeah, you. You're, you're constantly kind of chasing that one-upmanship, right. trying to prove yourself. Yeah, you you, you, don't, you will never win. Um, and so I, I think when I came back to California, um, we were at a church called Sunrise, and they had this really, really wonderful music band. Um, and, I, and I enjoyed it because it was made up of some professionals who had left the music industry um, for similar, similar reasons. And some musicians who played like professionals but um, just had chosen to not take that career path. Um, and it was, it, it was amazing to play with them because we were pursuing excellence for God's glory and we were doing it for church services and worship nights. And, you know, we were trying to hold ourselves to a professional standard but because we were glorifying God and, you know, trying to do things well, you know, too often do we grow complacent and kind of just accept that Christian things aren't quite as good as the secular. Although, as I think you're suggesting, Grace, the, it, it actually took you to a loftier goal. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to perform to a level where you can please an audience, make it to New York City, Carnegie Hall, get the applause, the spotlight. But when you're playing as unto God who is the very, not only creator of you, but the giver of this gift. That really becomes, as I think you're suggesting, the ultimate goal, the ultimate sense of satisfaction. Pleasing an audience is one thing, but he's a for you? Yeah, absolutely. If you've just joined us, we're visiting today with Grace Utomo. Grace is the author of a brand new, and I mean just released in October, book called Walking with Grace, Embracing God's Goodness in Trauma. You say, trauma? We're going to get to that part of the story in a moment. But when we come back, we're going to meet the gentleman located to your right. And our mystery guest will sign in in a moment. If you've just joined us, the Friday edition of Lifeline, we invite you down to a very special broadcast. We're here live today right up until 7 o'clock at Hillside Church, located at 545 Hillsdale Avenue in downtown San Jose or in San Jose. And uh, we're going to be getting a chance to meet more of Grace her story, her family, and we'll get back to more of that conversation and we'll have our mystery guest sign in as this edition of Lifeline continues right here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, 23 minutes after the hour of 5 o'clock on the Friday edition of Lifeline. Welcome back to the broadcast. We are here live on location at Hillside Church in San Jose. And it's a very special occasion indeed because it is the book signing of Grace's brand new release called Walking with Grace, Embracing God's Goodness in Trauma. And uh, Grace, I want to come back to the conversation we left off just before the break. We were talking about your leaving Eastman relocating to Southern California, 
And somewhere along the way in your Southern California school experience, you met the young man to your right. And uh, mystery guest, uh, let's, let's have you introduce yourself. You are? Hello. My name is Ivan Utomo. Ivan Utomo. And I bet you guys are related somehow. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> this is Grace's husband, Ivan. And you guys met while you were going to school. Yes, that's And you're right. a musician as well. You're a piano player, I understand. And, yeah, and that's how we met. So we met at California Baptist University in Riverside. I was a junior in my undergrad program. I was studying piano. And there's a group there called the University Choir and Orchestra. So we had, as it sounds, an orchestra. And we had a choir of about 100 people. And I got to play piano for this group. And uh, we rehearsed on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I think it was 2 to 4.30, something like that. So uh, on a... Uh, otherwise normal rehearsal day, um, we had a new student transfer in, and uh, the director kind of introduced the student. Uh, she was a tall, slender girl, uh, long brown hair, and uh, if that wasn't striking enough, the director also mentioned that she was coming from Eastman School of Music, which all of us suddenly were just kind of struck uh, in awe, I guess, because uh, Eastman, as I think Grace was referring to earlier, it's, it's extremely... Uh, selective to get into Eastman. It's it's a very, very high-rated music school, and so we were just wondering, or at least I was, uh, how this student made it from Eastman all the way to Cal Baptist. So you thought this piano violinist, huh? <laughs> every, every piano player needs a good violinist. And, and, and Grace, for, for you, was it love at first sight, or you thought, who is this piano player? Um, Think carefully, my- Grace. <laughs> My initial thoughts were probably not politically correct. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Clearly things changed over time, (laughs) and I'm I'm curious. So uh, who got up the courage to do the proposal? Well, you know, uh, when every time I've taken one of those random personality tests online, I always max out on the introvert side of things somehow. So that is, that is me. Um, but I don't know how. This has to be the grace of God. I actually uh, convinced myself to introduce myself to, to this new student. So I actually came up after rehearsal, uh, introduced myself, and I didn't die. So that was, that was good. Um, and from, from that point on, we just started having more conversations, and it became clear that I think we, we clicked. We had a lot of the same interests, uh, music, clearly, but um, also other things such as reading. Uh, big Tolkien fans and Lewis uh, love talking about art and history. And um, I think I remarked to Grace, I don't know if you remember this, Grace, that uh, I haven't really been able to have this depth of conversation with people mm. before you transferred. So it was one of those things where uh, it was a blessing for me, definitely, to be able to get to know Grace and develop uh, our friendship. Yeah. As you look back over those early years, can you share with us, without embarrassing yourself, um, what would you say was the one quality about Grace that really said, wow, this young lady not only is super special, but clearly has the hand of God in her life? In a word, humility. Mm. I think it was very clear how exceptionally gifted she was musically. I think um, just talent speaks for itself. And and when you combine talent with hard work, uh, it's like putting a megaphone on it, I guess, you know? And so that was very clear from the the get-go. But um, she's probably the most humble person I know. Isn't it interesting how the two words, humility and grace, also 
tend to go so often together. At some point, a proposal took place, and the two of you were married on December the 30th, to see if I've got it right, of 2015? Yeah. That's impressive. That is true. Great way to start the uh, start off the new year, end the year, and begin the new year. Yes. <laughs> so you guys are now married. You're living in Southern California. You're not only pursuing your new marriage relationship, but also pursuing your careers in music. And uh, Grace, you're beginning to advance in terms of being more involved in more public performances, and along the way, continuing to obviously serve the Lord through your music. I want you to kind of step us forward almost exactly one year later. In fact, you guys have not even yet celebrated your first year anniversary, and we're approaching Christmas time. And Grace, you've got a special concert coming up. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, we, um, well, we, had, we had just come down from being up, up here to um, see my parents for Thanksgiving, um, and we accidentally ran into a car in front of us when we backed down. So my car was in started everything. But um, anyway, I was rejoicing because my concert schedule was the fullest it had ever been. Like I literally almost had like a concert like three weeks. So fact, and something inside me said, are you thing? Like, why does, is, is God giving you all that money? Um, and I was like, you know, I'm not going to think about that. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, so on this Saturday, December 3rd, um, Ivan had a concert that he was going to play in Corona, California, which is about 30 minutes outside of Riverside where we lived. And then he was going to come back by and pick me up because I didn't have a car and drive me to Orange, California, which is like another hour, hour 15, for my own concert. Um, and so that's where we were at. Um, we were not having the best day. I, I think we were upset about something. I can't remember what it was, but I, I just remember that, like, we didn't have the greatest goodbye, and, you know, that kind of st- sticks with you. Um, and that happens. First year newlyweds, anybody can raise their hand and yeah. say, yeah, that kind of, some yeah. of you that said 60 years were still doing it, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's like no, normal, but you know, that, that can stick with you. So, um, and so it was, it, it was getting close to when Ivan needed to pick me up and I thought he was running late. And so I was like, well, I'm going to just walk across the street and like pick us up some sandwiches from Subway so that we we don't have to make a dinner stop and that'll help us like catch up on time and usually I text him what I'm going to do and for whatever reason I did not text him that and so sure enough I I walked outside um, our apartment and stepped into the crosswalk and the car hit me um it was going about 40 miles an hour. Driver did not hit his brakes. Um, then he, for whatever reason, we're not sure, threw the car in reverse and then drove forward again and hit his brakes. Um, so, we, yeah, we don't understand exactly what was going on. Um, the police officer did not test him for substances or alcohol, so we will never know exactly why he was driving the way he was driving. 
Um, he was dismissed for, with a $200 ticket for running a red light, and that was it. Wow. So you're innocently crossing the street. He comes barreling through, right through a red light. Mm -hmm. Full clip. I hope everybody caught that. 40 miles an hour. If you hit a brick wall at 40 miles an hour, it's over. Meanwhile, you were heading back home. And in fact, as you were heading back home, you had noticed that there had been some commotion in your neighborhood. Tell us about that, Ivan. Yeah, so um, as Grace uh, mentioned, I was heading to Riverside from Corona. I was playing um, for a choir at one of the high schools in Corona. So it was a Christmas concert, finished the concert. Um, I was heading home. And yeah, I think Grace and I typically we communicate um, pretty frequently, just letting uh, each other know what we're up to, what just we're doing. Checking in. Just checking in. And so when I got to the apartment and uh, opened the door, and she wasn't there. That was my first clue that something uh, was probably not the way it was supposed to be. And so I guessed that the Subway restaurant across the street to grab some food. And that's where I got back in my car, pulled out of our apartment complex. And um, I have to uh, make a U-turn to get to the Subway. And that's where I noticed there was a, a fire truck and an ambulance um, at the intersection where I needed to make my U-turn. Um, I, it, you know, it's always sad to see an accident, and so I, I prayed for whoever was involved. I couldn't see who was involved because of where the vehicles were parked. So I made the U-turn, made it to the subway, um, and that's where I started uh, calling Grace's phone multiple times. Uh, never made it through. It, it went straight to her voicemail each time. And I started getting more and more worried at that point because I, this was uh, atypical for Grace. I think she's typically very, uh, very punctual, um, and I wasn't quite sure what to do. Um, and it was at that time that I got a call from Grace's dad, and he was asking me how Grace was doing. And honestly, I, I, I didn't know. I was looking for her. Um, but he, he said that he had heard um, through uh, a couple of connections, a couple of friends who worked at um, our school at Cal Baptist that Grace had been in, a, in an accident and that it had happened at the intersection right outside the school. Our apartment was right across the street from Cal Baptist. And so I put two and two together and I realized that the, the ambulance and the fire truck, that scene where I had just made the U-turn, that was where Grace had been. And it's a very, very strange feeling to realize that you've just kind of driven right by the accident site of, of your wife. How did that hit you? I mean, you, you get home, she's not home, you decide to head back out, you see this activity going on, you even pause and say, Lord, I hope they're okay. You go about your business, you're on a mission, you're trying to find your wife. Had there ever been a connection for a moment, a any sense of foreboding, not before I got the phone call, but honestly, after, after I got the call, after we had that conversation, I headed back to the intersection, and by that time, uh, vehicles were gone, so I think traffic was just moving like it always does, and I think that's when the panic started to kick in. Yeah, um, descri describe for our listeners what that moment was like, when now all of a sudden the totality of the realization 
she's missing, there's been an accident, now you've had a telephone call confirming that something is amiss. This is your wife. You've not even celebrated your first anniversary together, Yuth. How does your heart feel at that moment, Ivan? It is incredibly hard to describe. I think um, your sense of time changes. I think um, you start thinking a million thoughts a second. And I think the biggest source of, of panic for me was not knowing what condition Grace was in. Um, because we, I knew that she had been in an accident, but I didn't know if, uh, if she was okay, if she had only had minor injuries, or if she was critically injured, or perhaps even worse. And I don't know how this happened. This has to be the grace of God, but I had the presence of mind to check my phone. Uh, we have an app that kind of tracks where each other's phone is, and according to the app, she was heading to Riverside Community Hospital. And there were two hospitals in Riverside, Kaiser and then RCH, and somehow Grace was being taken to RCH. And, and I remember thinking that's kind of weird because we're actually Kaiser patients. Why are they taking her to the other hospital? Um, but I really didn't have time to think too much about that as soon as I knew where she was or where she was heading. I um, must have broken some speed limits. Mm-hmm. But I, I made my way over to the hospital. And those, those 10 minutes getting there are... I've never had another 10 minutes like it because I... I knew that if God had called Grace home um, from, the, from the accident, that she would be in heaven and she would be experiencing perfect joy, perfect rest, perfect peace. But, but you're right, we hadn't even hit one year of marriage. And selfishly, I really, really wanted her to still be on earth. I'm going to ask you something terribly personal. So forgive the intrusion, but, but if you would indulge me and just kind of let us in. In that 10-minute drive... What does your conversation with God sound like? It was desperate. It was, it was no holds barred, just shouting out at God. Not, not physically, this was all in my heart, but I was, I was literally begging God to let grace stay. Emotions, disbelief, frustration, anger, confusion, all of it? There were definitely a lot of emotions happening. I think it's bizarre in this sense, I guess. But on the one hand, I had peace because I knew where Grace was going either way. Mm-hmm. So that, that was there. But at the same time, I, I guess a lot of it is from the vantage point of now looking back, I can maybe trace or identify some of those emotions. But I think I was experiencing loss, essentially or at least the idea that I may have lost my wife. And again, it was just the not knowing was the biggest kind of propeller of that fear. I want to come back to something, though, you just said a moment ago, because undoubtedly some listeners have have captured that brief statement that you made, that in spite of the range of emotions and confusion and this intense dialogue going on in your spirit with God, you nevertheless... And correct me if I misunderstood this, but you nevertheless had a sense that God was still in control, that even if it was, God forbid, the worst-case scenario, that something grave had happened, that you knew that if that had been the case, that God was going to look after her. 
Yes, that's right. And and the the reason I can say yes to that is because I know that I belong to the Lord and I know that grace belongs to the Lord as well. And what that means is that he he owns every part of us and that includes our lives and our deaths as well. So when you hear the phrase peace that surpasses all understanding, is that part of the definition? Is that in part what that means? I think so. I think now reflecting back on all of this, I one of the things that I've realized is that now I think about heaven a lot. Mm. That is one of the things I think about a lot. Um, and it's always been fascinating to me, this idea of being with God for all of eternity. Uh, it's just such a mind-blowing idea. Really comprehend it being stuck in time. We can try to think about it, and many people have thought about it and written many wonderful things about it. But in those 10 minutes as I was driving, the, the idea of death and resurrection and eternal life, they took on a whole new meaning for me. They, it, it was as if uh, these were no longer just concepts, but more real than actual reality. If I can reference a C.S. Lewis idea, I think he references this in some of his books. I, I mentioned that we were fans of his but just this idea that we live in this physical, material world, but we know that there is a spiritual reality that is, if anything, even more foundational, even more real than this one that we inhabit. Does that give you, as you look back on these six, seven years now, does that give you a greater sense of peace and tranquility? I mean, I, I think everyone, every, certainly every believer says, well, certainly I want to go to heaven, but whether you're 40 or 90, you probably think, but just not today. But yet, when, when the reality of death and life are compared side by side, you realize just how fragile life is, do you have a greater sense now of peace in knowing that not only God is real, as you have suggested in that that. that dialogue that you had with him and yet the peace in knowing that if the worst case scenario had happened that she was going to be okay meaning that God was in control and that is the notion of the reality of heaven more real to you and less in a sense of being bound that direction quickly less scary less frightening yeah, so thinking about peace I, I feel like I I have learned a lot about peace and God's sovereignty and how those um, relate to each other through this accident. But honestly, I feel like I have so much more to learn about that still. And what I mean by that is I, I have realized that my, my experience of peace and my understanding of it changes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that can just be day to day, depending on what's going on, that can affect how I think about it. It can, uh, it can affect how I feel. Um, my emotions can be affected for sure. But I think zooming out, so to speak, looking at the whole scope of, of life and death and, and heaven, I realized, I don't think I consciously realized this, but I, re I did realize it in some part of me, how little control I had over the situation mm. when, when the accident happened. It was very, very apparent that I had zero control over Grace's fate. And this was entirely in God's hands. And since then, continuing to process and look back, I, I feel that even today, 
the way that I operate is that I, I often overestimate how much control I have over the things that are going on in my life. And often I, I would say that, yes, God is in control, and I do believe that with all my heart. But at the same time, often my actions kind of show that, really, I'm still trying to control things. Yeah, I, I think that's called human nature, undoubtedly. If you've just joined us, our conversation, uh, Ivan Utomo with us today and his lovely wife, Grace. We're talking about Grace's brand new book, and I'll mention, by the way, this is newly released, and if you want to have her sign a copy for you here today, we invite you to come on down our broadcast live from Hillside Church, located at 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose. The new book, Walking with Grace, newly published by Shepherd Press. It'll soon be available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a time out. When we come back, we're going to ask Pastor Keith Crosby to join the conversation. As we continue to unfold the amazing stories together, we learn what it's like to be walking with grace. As this edition of Lifeline continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, thank you. We are back live on location at Hillside Church, 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose. And the excitement you're hearing tonight is this is the official book release of a brand new book published by our friends at Shepherd Press called Walking with Grace, Embracing God's Goodness in Trauma. And, of course, our special guest today is Grace Utomo. Thanks. It's great to be here tonight. Grace, as we've been hearing your story unfold, you've shared, Ivan has shared about that day. I've asked your dad to come up and join us. And, of course, to longtime listeners to KFAX, you certainly know the pulpit ministry of Dr. Keith Crosby here at Hillside Church in San Jose. And, Pastor, um, there were two probably most critical calls of your life that day, one that you received from a friend who had heard information that something had happened to your daughter, Grace, and then a second phone call that you placed to your son-in-law. Tell us about those calls. Well, you know, Craig, it's funny the things you remember. We were unpacking Christmas uh, decorations, and uh, we lived in a a three-story townhouse, and we were schlepping them up and down, and in the middle of all that, the phone rang, and I thought, well, here's an excuse to get out of this. <laughs> and so it was my really good friend, Doug Hall, who's here tonight, and his wife, Cindy. And Doug goes, so, you know, what's up? You know, and I was like, you know, nothing. doing Christmas decorations. He goes, have you heard anything from uh, Grace or anything? And I was like, well, no. And he goes, I think she was in an accident. Uh, uh, Jim Walters, the director of security at California Baptist University, was a... Uh, uh, a friend of ours and his, and he had called Doug and said that I think uh, Pastor Keith's daughter was hit by a car, uh, maybe a concussion and broken legs or something like that. And so Terry was with me, and I told her, and we just kind of took that in for a second, you know, and then I knew that I needed to track Ivan down. When you hung up the phone, what goes through a father's heart? in that moment. Your, your, your beautiful daughter, newly married, right on the cusp of launching this musical career, and you get a phone call like this, that I think she's been in an accident, and it may be severe. Mm-hmm. What happens in a father's heart in that moment? Well, you run through a range of emotions. I am a fixer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I usually function better in a crisis than I do in normal life. 
uh, usually it's other people's crises and not my own. And I just remember feeling like I'd been hit in the head with a, with a board. Yeah. So suddenly this is not somebody else's crisis. This right. is your crisis. Right. This is your daughter. Exactly. And, you know, I, I always call Grace. I have nicknames for both of my daughters, and I won't humiliate her or the other. Or who's right now in Savannah, Georgia. But, uh, you know, her, my firstborn baby girl child. And I just thought, what? You know, how can I get to her? How can we get to her as quickly as possible? You know, how can I protect her? Is there a moment, Pastor Crosby, where somewhere within the depth of your heart you say, God, this can't be. Wait a minute. I, I've, I've given my life to you. I, I, I left a, a successful career in the hospitality industry to follow your direction. I've been obedient to you. I've gone where you've called me to go. I've done what you've asked me to do. Father, how can you let this happen? Does that, does that happen? Does that dialogue ever take place somewhere in your heart? Now, nobody's going to believe me, but that dialogue never took place. Um, when I was first saved, I remember it was Philippians 3.10, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And I purposed to understand the protagonist of the Bible, to know his character, to know his goodness. And I know that God causes all things to work together for good. He declares the end from the beginning, and he doesn't make mistakes. And my heart was breaking but I can say I have never been mad at God through this, nor have I questioned him. Was there a sense, because the, the other part of that verse that you didn't complete quoting is to know him and the power of his resurrection. Mm -hmm. But this is the part where sometimes it's the, it's the messy part of Christianity. Yeah. It's the part that we sometimes run from. And that is to also know God in the fellowship of his sufferings. Mm -hmm. It's pretty heavy if you, if you really have a a grasp on the suffering that Christ went through on the cross, that's pretty intense. And as I thought about, and as I've often thought about this situation and others, I've always reminded myself there are no nail prints on my hands and feet. Wow. And that someone has done all the work for me. He saved Grace. He saved Anna, my other daughter. He gave me a sons-in-law that I couldn't... I mean, I remember... Ivan, uh, you know, and what, a, what, a, what an incredible man he is. And I remember praying that lightning would strike twice and I get another son-in-law just like him, you know. And they're very similar. They're both godly, courageous men. And so, as Ivan said, I knew that she was safe in the arms of God, win, lose, or draw, humanly speaking, if she lived or if she died. But like Ivan, Terry and I sure wanted her to live. Yeah. There are sometimes phone calls that have to be made that we never want to make. I would imagine that high on that list is getting news like this, trying to quickly process spiritually, emotionally, as well as mentally what you've just been told, and now to pick up the phone and have to deliver that news. And you have no idea if Ivan has been looped in on any of this. Maybe you even go into this with a sense of fear and trepidation that you're going to be dropping the bomb, so to speak. How does that conversation go for you? It went odd. It was like, uh, you know, ball players talk about how when a pitcher throws the ball, they can slow the pitch down and see the threads. Everything kind of went into slow motion. So I called Ivan. And it, 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 the crazy things you do and the things you remember, I called Ivan and said, so Ivan, how you doing? You know, and he goes, 
And I could tell he was somewhat perplexed. And he goes, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing good. I said, and Grace, how's she doing? And he goes, well, I don't know. I'm trying to contact her right now. And I said, well, Ivan, I don't know how to tell you this, but she's been in an accident. And I remember his next two words, oh, my. I think I just drove by the accident. Wow. Yeah. Grace, we don't want to leave you out of this because this is your story. <laughs> While all of this is happening, you are being rushed to an a- in an ambulance to a hospital. Given the severity of the impact, 40 miles an hour hitting you dead on, uh, you're clearly in shock. Any sense at all, or maybe I should ask you, at what point do you have some sense of something really bad has happened to me? I am completely out the whole time. Um, I am told that I gave uh, the police a statement um, and that I was somewhat aware during, halfway during the emergency room stabilization period and then that I deteriorated quickly and they put me in a coma. But um, as far as me and the head trauma goes, they say that people... Patients who experience severe head trauma rarely remember anything. So for me, uh, my memory is, you know, locking the door of the apartment, um, getting into the crosswalk, and my next memory is, you know, being kind of in this really warm blanket and being like, oh, did I take a nap? Like, man, I'm going to be late for the concert now. And then being like, why can't I move anything um, and then I've been, you know, saying, oh, you're okay, you're okay, you're, you've been in an accident. Um, but that was, you know, a couple of weeks later. Um, so, so, yeah, for me, I, I really have no concept of the accident or what happened. And, you know, I count that a great, great blessing because I, I know a lot of people do remember what happened to them and they are traumatized and they have these memories they have to work through. And um, so I, I'm very, very grateful that I don't have those things. Um, you know, my, my residual deficits and my um, disabilities are physiological. Um, but... Yeah, I think when I woke up from the coma, they said I was around the mental age of a three-year-old because of everything my brain had gone through. So, yeah, I I was not tracking much for a very long time. The totality for for the benefit and perspective of listeners, upon the impact, there was major head trauma. Yes. Um, You ultimately suffered two strokes. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, there was also multiple cerebral hemorrhages related to the, the injuries? Yes. Yeah, so I think, um, to my knowledge, there's a severe traumatic brain injury, two strokes, and then multiple brain bleeds. Um, that's, to my knowledge, um, what the medical record said. Keith, I would imagine for you, that, do you get moments of even perhaps numbness, just hearing this story and thinking about what your daughter has been through? I do. I have to share something. <clears throat> we've always talked about the accident, you know, individually or to it. We've never been all in the same place at the same time like this and relived it before. And it is, uh, 
in some sense, numbing, uh, uh, shocking, uh, uh, astounding. And, uh, you know, uh, it, I, I look at how radically the trajectory of our lives changed. And we just started here at this church. I've been here for about five months. And uh, it just sort of blew our world up, basically. And Does it also, though, become over time confirmation and i and i ask that question because i think of and our listeners many gathered here today know your pulpit ministry know what you teach as thus saith the lord from scripture sunday after sunday after sunday you have made proclamations about god's goodness god's grace god's faithfulness god's saving power god's keeping power and now you've suddenly been moved into a position in literally the blink of an eye, where everything that you've taught from the pulpit during your ministry, you're now going to have to live out and watch God prove out in your life. How does that feel? It felt like a weighty responsibility. Um, I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I feel sorry for the other pastors in this town because they don't have a congregation like this one. Mm, Wow. And um, they... They took care of us. Terry was gone for five and a half months. I was commuting down there. Some guys chipped in their frequent flyer miles. People drove me to Southern California. People from Sunrise Church drove me back up to Northern California. People took me to dinner, checked on me, all kinds of things. And, uh, and so it was... They made it uh, easy for me than it would have been. And, and of course, God provided all of this. He provided these people, their big hearts. Uh, he provided everything. And so what I tried to model for them during that time was just confidence in God. You know, it's interesting. We were talking before we came on the air today about how God loves us through other people. That, that, that's the way he predominantly, I mean, certainly we know of Scripture and his Christ's work on the cross, but God uses others in our horizontal plane to experience his love from the vertical plane. And, you know, I would imagine, and this is a question I would like to have both of you perhaps address, that in many circumstances, and anybody who's gone through a traumatic experience that has even a fleeting familiarity, not, not even a relationship, just a fleeting familiarity with God, will ask the question, in that moment of tragedy, where is God? And yet, hearing you share all that transpired in the days and weeks and months following Grace's accident, and Ivan has given testimony to this as well, that the answer is God showed up again and again and again. That's right. You know, it's, you know, God never, you know, Sometimes we turn our back on God, but he never turns his back on us. And uh, I say this, uh, I think I said it to you earlier, I have a face made for radio. (laughs) That makes Um, makes two of us. I'm in a good mood. It looks like I want to do violence to everybody, you know. And so I'm not easy to love. I'm like a, a porcupine or an iguana. And so these people, you know, God moved these people to come around me and, uh, and so, you know, God showed, he always shows up. He's, he's never, uh, I've never felt alone. Yeah, and I, w- I would just like to add, too, that um, 
you know, my, my dad and my mom were new to Hillside at the time of the accident. And Ivan and I were serving at a church in Riverside um, when mom and dad moved up here to serve at Hillside. So um, when we had the accident and mom and dad came down to Southern California, um, Hillside hadn't met us. They didn't know what we looked like. They, you know, we hadn't gone to a single church service. They, and suddenly um, we were receiving numerous, you know, gift cards or Visa cards or Costco cards for whatever we needed. And they found out that I couldn't fit in normal clothes and I wouldn't be wearing them for several months. And suddenly I got a ton of pajamas and I still have almost all of them. So thank you. <laughs> I got I got way too used to wearing them and I haven't been able to stop. <laughs> And, yeah, and, and they were just so generous, allowing, you know, a, a pastor's wife to be gone for five months. I mean, that that's just incredible to me still. So, yeah, I mean, it just an incredible church. And, you know, we would absolutely not have made it on our own um, without your love and your sacrifice. Um, and, yeah, I I think, you know, as an American culture, we like to think of making it on our own or, you know, doing things individually. But that is so not true. You know, God created us to be in community. And, um, you know, it's just really beautiful to see the body of Christ work together um, and to experience that. Um, and then also, hopefully, you know, as we are able, turn around and try to do that for others. Um, so, yeah, I just want to take this time to second everything my dad said about Hillside and much, much more. Um, but, yeah, and as far as, you know, where God is, you know, in that moment of trauma, I, I also second what my dad says and that um, I didn't have that thought either. I, I think when I woke up, I, knew, I was very, very happy to be alive. And I, I was very aware that I should not be alive. And I was very happy that I had all my limbs. Um, I, I knew that I almost lost my foot. Um, I was very happy that one of my arms worked well. I was, and so I, I think I just looked at, you know, what God had given me. And I was like, you know, how can I be angry about um what I haven't, like, what I have not. How can I be angry when God has given me all these things that he didn't have to give me? Um, and also, I mean, he's the God of the universe. He's not accountable to me. I'm, I'm a finite human being. Like, who am, who am I to be like, why did you do this, God? Like, you know, I wouldn't talk to my parents that way, much less God. Um, so I, I think it just comes back to like, is God really sovereign God or is he just like, a um, and, and do we trust that he's good or do we just kind of think he might be good? And then when he doesn't really play by our rules, we say, oh, forget it. Um, so yeah, I think it comes down to like, 
who you see God is so that when something happens, then you either have that foundation to go off of or if you don't have that foundation, then, then you do fall apart. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe that's the serious experience. It's difficult enough to go through a traumatic experience like this I can't imagine and I don't want to imagine what it would be like to go through an experience like this apart from God. And we're going to pick up that part of the conversation when we come back. We're also going to ask Terry Crosby to join us as our dialogue with Grace Utomo continues a look at walking with grace, embracing God's goodness in trauma. And by the way, if you're down here in the South Bay in San Jose and you'd like to come by and join us for the live broadcast, we're going to be here about another 50 minutes or so at Hillside Church. That's located at 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose. The new book, by the way, recently published just right here in October by Shepherd Press, available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as here at Hillside Church and through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. A brief time out back with more of the story, learning walking with grace. Grace Utomo, our guest on this special edition of Lifeline, coming your way tonight on the Friday edition from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 